The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. You're watching Here and Now 2024 election coverage. Pro-life and pro-choice advocates are asking the Wisconsin Supreme Court to weigh in on abortion. And leaked data from ShotSpotter reveals a method of heavy police surveillance over Milwaukee's black and Hispanic neighborhoods. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Tonight on Here and Now, a legal expert on the arguments presented to the state Supreme Court on abortion. The latest deer harvest numbers resurface the debate over wolves, and the ACLU weighs in on technology police use to detect gunfire. Plus, special projects journalist Merv Seymour brings a new series called In Focus. It's Here and Now for March 1st. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. Parties on opposite sides of whether abortion is legal in Wisconsin want the state Supreme Court to settle the question. Even as abortions are now being performed in the state after a Dane County court ruled last summer that a 174-year-old law on the books does not use the term abortion and only prohibits attacking a woman in an attempt to kill her unborn child. Sheboygan County District Attorney Joel Ermanski had appealed that ruling and argues the 1849 statute does indeed prohibit performing abortions except to save the life of the mother. He now wants to bypass the appeals court and allow the high court to consider the matter. Likewise, Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call wants the case to go directly up to avoid prolonging harm, he says, caused by the confusion in Wisconsin law that existed following Dobbs. Call will argue in favor of the Dane County ruling and that the state constitution protects women's rights over their bodies. For more on this, we turn to Emeritus Professor of Political Science and affiliate faculty member at the UW Law School, Howard Schwaber. And thanks very much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. So how gnarly of a case is this for the Supreme Court to unpack, or are the issues clear-cut? It is as gnarly as they want it to be. Um, it's, it's worth pointing out the 1849 law is not the only law at issue. There's a 1985 law that says after 22 weeks, abortions are permitted only where the life or health of the woman is at risk. And there are a series actually of other lesser known laws, I think. Uh, there's a 2015 law that effectively makes that limit 20 weeks. Uh, there's an informed consent law. There's a 24-hour delay law. In 2019, there were no fewer than five bills passed out of the legislature to restrict abortion. So this is a live issue uh, for which Governor Evers vetoed. So this is a very live issue, and it's not just the question of are abortions allowed or up until what point, but there's a whole series of laws that could be uh, at stake in a ruling by this court. The court has, of course, a new majority regarded as liberal, which is assumed to be more friendly to abortion rights. But for both sides, it is useful to get clear answers. I think for the pro-life side, uh, it would be useful partly, of course, just to know what the rules are, but partly also to use this as a mobilizing issue in 2025, uh, excuse me, when Justice Bradley will come up for re-election and in the 2024 campaign. Um, previously, the abortion issue has benefited Democrats. I think there's a feeling on the part of some Republicans that can be turned around. 
if voters think that the, the pendulum is swinging too far in the other direction. Conversely, of course, pro-choice advocates would like to see this court strongly rule in favor of abortion rights and settle these issues once and for all. I have to say, I think the most likely outcome is one that will perfectly satisfy neither side, uh, which is something to the effect of saying that the 1985 law is valid and remains in force, and in that way, avoiding the question of the 1849 law altogether by simply saying, if it, if it did apply to abortions, it's been superseded. That would be the easy, efficient solution. And frankly, it's the one I'm hoping the court will take. Hmm. Well, I was going to ask you about that because my reading of the call petition to bypass says if the Dane County ruling doesn't hold, he will also argue that the modern abortion laws supersede the 1849 law. Uh, and so you think the call case stacks up pretty well there? It certainly gives the court an easy solution, uh, one that is not politically extreme or legally extreme. Um, the, the Wisconsin Constitution certainly uh, permits the 1985 statute, unless we reinterpret uh, it in a really fairly dramatic way. So I, I think it, 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 it stacks up legally and it stacks up politically in a way that I think would serve this court's interests very well. And frankly, I think would serve uh, the interests of, of the people of Wisconsin reasonably well, keeping in mind that Wisconsin is a genuinely divided state on this issue as on so many others. So Cole also argues uh, that the Wisconsin Constitution protects a woman's right to control her body, freedom over uh, the direction of her life, and equal protection under the law. Wouldn't the other side argue that there's a constitutional protection of an unborn child? Well, not exactly. Um, so a constitutional protection of a right to life applies to the state. The government can't take your life away. That doesn't mean that the government has to pr protect you against a private person. I mean, of course, we have laws against murder, uh, but there's no constitutional requirement that there be a law, for example, against, let's say, vehicular homicide. Uh, of course, we want those laws, but they're not constitutionally required. So the other side's argument isn't really strong if it tries to work from the idea of fetuses having rights. The strong argument is simply that there's a sufficiently important and sufficiently powerful legislative interest at stake here to override whatever rights claims are asserted. And of course, no rights are absolute, whether it's a free speech right uh, or a right to abortion or anything else. Any assertion of a right can be overcome by a sufficiently strong societal interest. And so that's the question. What is the scope of this right? And then once that right is defined, what is the scope of the, of the government's legitimate interest despite the existence of a constitutional rights guarantee? So once the U.S. Supreme Court threw the issue of abortion back to the states, are there any other states in a situation like Wisconsin litigating over a 174-year-old law? I'm not aware of any other state in this specific situation, uh, although there are a number of states that have what were called trigger laws, uh, laws that were on the books but unenforceable while Roe was enforced that immediately came into effect when the Dobbs decision came down. Certainly lots of states are wrestling with this question. You know, the most disingenuous part of the Dobbs opinion, frankly, was when the majority said that the decision will turn this question back to state legislatures. Of course, what it's done is turn the question back to state courts. And that's what we're seeing play out in Wisconsin. And as you, as you say, elsewhere as well. All right, Howard Schwaber, thanks very much. My pleasure. Lower-than-usual deer hunt totals for 2023 were released by the DNR this week, continuing a trend of declining harvests since the year 2000. Over that same time, wolves have seen their population triple. 
How much impact does the apex predator have on the Northwoods deer population? And why are Wisconsinites so passionate about the animal? Here and Now reporter Nathan Denzine explains. I'm here today to talk about my brother. And my brother is the Maingan. The more you put wolves in close contact, in proximity with people, just the greater the chances are of, of something truly catastrophic happening. I think wolves should be allowed to reestablish their historic range. They're going to allow an unchecked, unmanaged wolf population to continue to wreak havoc. Bring up wolves to a Wisconsinite and you'll likely get a passionate response. It's probably been the longest, most intense public engagement process that I've been a part of. Sam Jonas is the Wildlife Species Section Supervisor with the Wisconsin DNR. He helped write Wisconsin's newest wolf management plan, which was released in late 2023. It strives for a sustainable uh, and healthy wolf population in the state of Wisconsin. Gray wolves are federally protected as an endangered species, but if that designation was ever lifted, Wisconsin would be required by law to hold a wolf hunt like it did in 2021. The DNR received over 3,500 public comments while developing the plan with a group of 29 stakeholders. One of those stakeholders, the Red Cliff Band of Ojibwe in northern Wisconsin. The Maingan goes back in our history and our stories, our existence, who we are as Anishinaabe. Shingwe Benes, or Marvin Defoe, is a spiritual leader in Red Cliff. In Ojibwe, Maingan means wolf. We know the Maingan as our brother. He says that the relationship between wolves and Ojibwe people goes back over thousands of years. There's a lot of misconceptions uh, out there about the Maingan, a loving being that has a heart, that has a soul. Wolves are really important to native people of Wisconsin because it's said that what happens to one of us will happen to the other. Ron Norden Jr. is the wildlife technician for the Red Cliff Tribe. That's the tribe's objective to protect wolves and they're a keystone species, they create biodiversity, they're excellent for the habitat, you know, we're seeing better forest regeneration. They have a great role to play, not just with deer, but with lots of lots and lots of other animals out in the woods. Genevieve Adamski works with Norton Jr. as the wildlife specialist for the Red Cliff Tribe. Wolves will, in general, um, regulate themselves. You know, they have pack boundaries. They can't just exponentially grow. The wolf population in Wisconsin has grown, but not exponentially. They numbered about 250 in 2001 and are roughly 1,000 today. That growth has caused plenty of conflict. It has become a real issue for agriculture and especially, of course, livestock agriculture. Brad Olson is the president of the Wisconsin Farm Bureau. It was also involved in the 2023 management plan. Olson says wolves are a big concern for farmers in the northern half of the state. In one case in central Wisconsin, they came in in a night and wiped out the entire herd of sheep. That's years and years of, of, of work by that individual farmer. The emotional stress of, of something like that, um, you know, losing everything in one night due to a predator. The Wisconsin DNR paid out over $100,000 to farmers for livestock killed by wolves in 2022. But Olson says it's about more than money. It isn't a financial loss at that point. It's an emotional loss at, at that point, and it's something that, that, I'm sorry, you know, money just can't fix. Olson says he and his organization aren't opposed to having wolves in the state. I don't think anybody is, is out to get rid of the wolves. But thinks the 2023 management plan has flaws. I mean, it's, it's a bad plan. The Farm Bureau sent a letter to the DNR opposing the new plan back in October. 
A key point of contention is the number of wolves recommended for a healthy habitat. The old guidelines recommended a population of 350 wolves for the whole state before other management practices like a hunt were implemented. Now, there is no specific number named before those management plans would be considered. Once you get past that 350 goal that, that was back in the late 90s in the original wolf plan that had scientific data to it, um, this plan really has no scientific data. It's a, it's a, it's a feel-good plan. But the DNR's Jonas says that number was misunderstood and needed to be updated. It was never intended to be a cap, per se. It was really a, a management objective or number to consider other management tools. He says the new guidance doesn't use a statewide number of wolves because it wants to be more responsive to local communities. We're also going to be balancing that with what does depredation look like, what do conflicts look like within each zone, uh, what is the community saying for the wolf population where they live. Let's say we do set a goal number, that's going to change from year to year based on, you know, not only climate data, but people, where the people are distributed, and just all these different factors. Not everyone sees it that way. If you look at deer harvest over the years compared to wolf populations over the years, it is a, there is a direct co co correlation between the two. Keith Mark is the president of Hunter Nation, a national organization for hunters. Hunter Nation did not participate in the 2023 management plan, though multiple in-state hunting organizations did. Hunter Nation sued the state of Wisconsin in 2021 to schedule a wolf hunt while gray wolves were briefly delisted. Surely they want to see a sustainable population of deer. Yearly deer hunt harvests have fallen since its peak in 2000, from well over half a million to about 350,000 a year ago. Northern counties, mm -hmm. like Bayfield, have seen a particularly sharp decline. Hunt totals in 2022 were only a fraction of what they were two decades ago. You're going to end up with so few deer that there won't be a hunting season. In my part of the state, you can sit out there for hours on end on opening day of deer season not, and not hear anything, not hear a shot. But others aren't as sure wolves are solely to blame for the Northwoods' declining deer population. If you were around here last winter, 157 inches of snow, you know, it's going to kill the deer. When there's less deer, what are the wolves going to eat? It's really the deer population that regulates the wolf population. DNR records show the past five years of deer harvest in Bayfield County have been larger than harvest between 1967 and 1978. That was before the first reintroduced wolf pack wandered into Douglas County. If the gray wolf ever was taken off of the endangered list, the 2023 management plan lays out a system for experts to decide local harvest goals. We want to be able to incorporate local input, uh, local feedback as to how they feel, you know, wolf populations are in their community. What is the science saying? But that's not the only thing we're going to be looking at, and that's going to help us be flexible and adaptable to what wolves are telling us. In the meantime, everyone agrees there is common ground to be found. We need to work together. We need to be vigilant and sit down and listen to each other. They are a majestic animal, and I don't think, you know, no one is advocating for their demise again. We really have to come together and have a really mean, meaningful conversation, a mutual, respectful conversation of what's going on with this earth. For Here and Now, I'm Nathan Denzine in Red Cliff.
technology that picks up shots fired in Milwaukee is under the microscope. It's called Shot Spotter, and it captures the sound of gunfire with microphone sensors located on mostly the north and, to a lesser degree, the south sides of the city. These are predominantly black and Hispanic neighborhoods. The gunshot detection system alerts police to the location for response. Wired Magazine recently leaked the location of the audio sensors, which are accompanied in Milwaukee by poll cameras for remote surveillance. Last year, there were more than 14,000 shot spotter activations in the city. Across the country, some 84 cities use the technology, where nearly 70% of the people who live in those neighborhoods are black or Hispanic. This is what our next guest calls the over-surveillance of the most heavily marginalized communities in the country. John McRae Jones is a policy analyst with the American Civil Liberties Union of Wisconsin. And John, thanks very much for being here. Hey, how are you doing today? Good. So you call it dystopian that there are over 25,000 microphones in communities nationwide. Uh, how so? I think that this is going, not missing the forest for, for the trees. I think that this paints the picture of the larger surveillance network that are being built in local law enforcement inside cities around the country. I mean, just inside Milwaukee, we have the shot spotters that we're going to talk about. We have Stingray cell site simulators. We have automated license plate readers. We have uh, private cameras that are going to be net accessible to the Milwaukee Police Department. We have drones being proposed as a way of surveilling uh, communities. And I think when you start layering these things on top of each other, you paint this 1984 dystopian nightmare. So does the use of ShotSpotter and, and, and these other technologies result in over-policing then of marginalized neighborhoods in your mind? 100%. I think there's going to be a narrative push that the reason why ShotSpotters is put in the location that they are is because these communities experience the largest amount of gun violence. The problem with this narrative is that multiple studies have proved that shot spotters doesn't actually reduce gun violence. There's a 2021 report out of Northwestern that talks about how 86% of shot spotters alert does not lead to any report of a crime at all. And there's a 10-year study out of St. Louis that says that shot spotters does not A, reduce crime, and B, does not improve police times. So the problem is that not only is this a waste of taxpayer resource by sending cops into these neighborhoods and there's nothing that they can do to reduce gun violence, but the second problem is that you're sending these officers who are expecting to encounter someone with a gun into black and brown communities that are all already over-policed and already have a rocky relationship with law enforcement and you're just creating a recipe for a disaster. Meanwhile, the manufacturer of the shot spotter uh, technology says it provides intelligence that allows police to coordinate safe, efficient, and equitable responses that require fewer resources in a way that builds community trust. Uh, what's your response to that? I mean, that's great, but the independence research doesn't back that up. And I think that's why we need data out of Milwaukee to know if the privacy that we're trading to law enforcement and trading to these private companies actually leads to safer communities for the people being over-policed and surveilled by ShotSpotter. 
So um, another question, what do you think of the fact that police, in my understanding, are allowed to use shot spotter calls to generate probable cause to search someone nearby? That goes back to the over-policing. The fact that some unlucky person who's walking around at night who happens to just to be in the vicinity of a shot spotter alert now has probable charge to be stopped and frisked is kind of dystopian. I mean, the idea that you're walking through your community and just because some technology that, again, going back to the 2021 Northwestern study, there was over 40,000 dead end deployments in the city of Chicago in a two-year span. So this unreliable technology sends out an alert. Police are, are sent to your community, and now you're stopped and frisked just because you're walking alone at night inside the vicinity. So would, would the ACLU like to get rid of the use of ShotSpotter in Milwaukee altogether? It's easy for us to say yes. It's easy for us to say that all these surveillance technologies, going back to automated license plate readers, private cameras being integrated into law enforcement, drones and facial recognition should be banned. It's also very easy for law enforcement to say, hey, these technologies are worth the squeeze and worth the resources that we're pouring into it. What I want to propose is a community control over police surveillance ordinance, also known as CCOPS. These ordinances are being passed in cities around the country, and they do two things. So first, any technology that law enforcement wants to use has to have a city council hearing or whatever is the legislative body to approve that technology. And what that does is it allows the community to come in and have input to their elected officials and say, hey, we want this technology in our neighborhoods, or no, I don't feel comfortable with automated license plate readers tracking everywhere my car goes, or no, I don't feel comfortable with microphones being stationed in my community. And then the second thing that CCOPS ordinance does is that every year law enforcement has to publish an annual report that goes to the city that one, talks about the financial strain that these technologies are costing communities, and two, they actually, they tell us the data on are these communities, are, are these technologies actually making communities safer? And I think that's the most important aspect because we don't know if ShotSpotter works in Milwaukee. We spent millions of dollars over the past decade and homicides have risen and fallen in, in the city. So that knowing that the privacy that we're trading is actually leading to some type of benefit to the community is something that's worth investing on. All right, well, John McRae-Jones, thanks very much. Tonight, we want to introduce you to a web franchise you can see on the news page at pbswisconsin.org. Here's a taste of our special project journalist's longer-form interview series titled In Focus with Merv Seymour. Do you ever worry about coming up sounding too angry? I am angry. But do you ever worry about sounding too angry? No. No, no. In fact, what I told one of the funders is um, when white men start becoming more angry, perhaps then I can become less angry. So help me carry this anger. What's funny about Wisconsin? <laughs> uh, for me, what's funny about Wisconsin has always been y'all just act like it's not cold. Like even on the way in, it's just people ice fishing. Like, why do you have to think of stuff to do outside when it's cold? Just inside find inside things to do. What keeps a journalism professor up at night? I'm worried that 
the attacks on those whose job it is to share things that are verifiably true are making it so that we have a really hard time ever deciding what's true at all. The presidential election is taking shape as primary elections across the country cement the two frontrunners. But the 2024 elections, both nationwide and here in Wisconsin, bring a new level of polarization. In this longer excerpt from In Focus, reporter Merv Seymour sat down with election and communications expert Michael Wagner, professor of journalism at UW-Madison. How would you describe the overall climate in terms of politics right now? Well, in Wisconsin, politics is, is relatively contentious and has been kind of getting increasingly contentious uh, in, in lots of different ways over time. And, and in 2022, the last time we did a statewide survey, we found that 20% of Wisconsinites had just cut somebody out of their lives altogether because of political disagreements. Wow. Now, some of that is because people are sometimes awful to each other. But there are other times when we just don't even have the stomach to talk with people with whom we disagree. And when we cloister ourselves in echo chambers, we tend to get more extreme in our attitudes and more sure of ourselves. Do we right. know how we got here in terms of that kind of uh, polarization? We know some of how we got here, right? So when, when I was growing up, news was much more pitched more toward moderates because they wanted as wide of an audience as possible. Enter the late 80s, early 90s in cable television, and now you want narrower audiences. And enter Fox News in the mid-1990s, and not only do you want a narrower audience, you want an audience where you're saying this side is right and this side is wrong. And then MSNBC says, well, we're going to go in the other direction and say, no, this is the other side that's right and the, this, this other side that's wrong. And so we've had increasingly kind of narrow-casted news. All of this happens in the environment where the internet takes off and then takes off at a speed where people can get a lot of information on it very quickly. And so now it's trickling down into how we behave and it interacts with the information environment that we all live in. Look for In Focus with Merv Seymour on our webpage. For more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website by going to pbswisconsin.org and then by clicking on the News tab. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.